0: Next, we then have the privilege of being joined by two senior officials from Health Canada, who uh, David Lee and Elizabeth Toller, to hear directly about their evolving regulatory approach to bleeding-edge health innovation technologies. I have been told that they are ready for your questions. Then, over lunch, we will hear from the Honourable Mary Ng, Minister for Small Business Export Promotion and International Trade, about a number of new initiatives aimed at stimulating growth in Canada's health innovation space. After lunch, Jody Butts will sit down with Alex Munter, the President and CEO of CHEO, to talk about adopting innovation on the front lines of care delivery. All told, we hope you come away from today's conversations with some new ideas, some new perspective and context for your own work, as we as a policy community work towards a more sustainable and effective health system for all Canadians.
1: Thank you, everybody. Um, My name is Elizabeth Toller. I'm an executive director of regulatory innovation in the health products and food branch of Health Canada. And I'm here with my colleague, David Lee, who's our chief regulatory officer in the same branch. We're here to talk to you about our regulatory innovation plans. Um, Really what we're going to do today is uh, we're going to walk you through the journey we've taken over the last couple of years to really understand the drivers that are requiring us as a regulator of food and drugs to change, and then talk to you about our plans for how we're setting ourselves up for the future of health innovation. Um, I'd say that really the key theme of our presentation today is figuring out, You know, how we as a regulator can support innovation by making our regulations more agile, more responsive to that rapid pace of innovation in the biomedical sector without um, softening or or reducing our safety bar, which is critically important to our mandate. And so David's going to start off by giving us a a bit more around the context of that journey, and then I'll speak specifically to our regulatory innovation plans.
2: Okay, so uh, thank you, Elizabeth. So for those of you uh, that are not used to us, uh, Health Canada is in the way of any health product coming into the Canadian market and being used in the treatment context. So what we're looking for is safety, effectiveness, at least those were the old values. And we have the Food and Drugs Act and regulations to administer. Some of that's pretty old. So when you think about some of these new technologies, we'll talk about really the primary architecture for drugs was last significantly revised in the 60s. So it's, you can imagine in the 60s they weren't thinking AI, they certainly weren't thinking bioprinting and, and so on. So we're moving really from a setting also where we, those regulations were calibrated for big pharma and for big companies making devices globally, and that really was the model we were getting to. Whereas we're seeing a lot more shifts in evidence, a lot more development in hospital or or manufacturing in hospital. And so we're trying to understand what are the big shifts in the paradigm. And that's where we're going, again, into sort of setting up a system that's lifecycle. And that's when we came up with Vanessa's law in the Change the Food and Drugs Act, really to get a better glance at drug safety and device safety and performance. But we couldn't stop there. In fact, we started to realize all sorts of new science is coming into us, and we have to be ready as a regulator. It's a a responsibility that we have uh, to be ready to review it scientifically, but also from a regulatory point of view. Are we a barrier? And so we started to see, uh, for example, we we started a foresight process. We looked out 10 years. We went out, actually got away from Ottawa, went to people's labs. I'll, I'll get into that a bit more we started learning uh, that, really, complexity is a big driving issue for products. There are things that are hard to identify now. I mean, we've talked about bioprinting. But there are, are adaptive printers now that can print a tissue embedded with a cell that's genetically repurposed. I mean, what is that? It's sort of a device. It's a drug. It's, it's, a, it's everything in the spectrum. There's software included in that. And so how we regulate that and that complexity is really a big concern. We're also seeing citizen agency. We, we met with groups like AgeWell, uh, which is a seniors organization, really very eye-opening. It's not just that apps exist and you're getting information now, but um, if they don't like it, they're starting to hack it. They all have millennial grandchildren and they've got the time. and so. But that's important as a regulator to understand. So then the other big driver for us uh, is precision and personalization. It is more and more within the treatment capabilities to tailor a therapy. That's very good news. But as a regulator, we're used to statistical models that that deal with very big populations. And and so when we look at performance, how safe is it, how does it work, we're used to models of understanding that really apply less and less to these very precise therapeutic interventions. And then there's data. So data is a huge thing for us. I mean, we're used to getting what we call clinical data, which is a very rigorous sort of type of data. But now data comes from what you wear. It comes from all sorts of sources. How do we validate it? How do our biostatisticians look at that and say, can we actually tell something reliably? I mean, how can we see that working? Because data's got to be, for us, uh, interpretable, meaningful, in terms of seeing how the product performs. So we started also looking at what types of product lines are coming out that we uh, really need to look at in terms of our capabilities. Artificial intelligence. Again, it's nascent, but when we went to places like Vector and some of the hospitals, they're deploying diagnostic technologies now, and they're going to be branching out into others. So they're already sort of arriving. But in the regulations, for example, right now, we have a rule that says if you make a significant change to a diagnostic software, you have to revalidate. Well, that's kind of like every two seconds or so for, for AI. So it's just you see the rule jars against how the technology is going to perform. And it's really not useful for us to use, you know, a safety oversight with an old rule like that. Same with advanced cell therapies. I mean, a lot of these on the precision side, we don't have the precision regulating to go along with these. A lot of them... Are manufactured in a very complex way. We're starting to just learn about what hospitals need to know to deploy them, you know, what what sort of expertise, and then how do we layer on our oversight? So it's it's really it's not like a capsule that you would buy that's prescribed, or or a device like a like a toothbrush. Clearly, these are ways of understanding that that we need to develop both science but also regulation. And I just mentioned the bioprinting. That could take off. We don't know yet. I mean, how far that will go. A lot of that's still in the trial environment. Um, But if it lives up to some of its promise, it could be very, very transformative. You can imagine almost any organ or tissue you can print, and it can be embedded with your cells and adjusted to you genetically. That's what people are working on. So along with this foresight uh, exercise came along an edict from the Treasury Board uh, to, for us to go as, a, as a, a regulator in an important sector, biomedical, and understand how are we affecting innovation. And this is something, uh, for me, I've been working many decades with the Food and Drugs Act, but it's, it's rare for the center, for, the, for government to say, go out and do that exercise. So it was quite exciting. We were able to take reports from, for example, our, our economic strategy table. One of the recommendations was agile regulating better uptake, better skills, et cetera. But certainly agile regulations was a big part of it for us. So we were able to take and, uh, through the budget, implement a number of measures. I'll sort of go through what those are. But they, really, uh, they go to the research environment, but also how you, you can commercialize brand new innovations outside of the, the normal regulatory model. So when, it, when we went across the country, we heard on a couple of issues. One was, and these drive uncertainties in the business climate, but also, I think, in the treatment context as well. So classification, the what am I question, that, that can affect the business. If, if you actually make, make an effort to prove yourself as a, as a device, and we say you're a drug, that's 10 years, 20 years of lost work. It, it could be very punishing to not know what you are. Then there's clinical trials. So we've got new models of doing trials. We're talking about virtual medicine. There's virtual trialing too. We need to sort of step into that world where if you're in a remote community, you can still get access to a clinical trial, not have to drive to Vancouver or Toronto. Then there's uh, the question of access. And this was really, um, this is the high-tech stuff that, that if, if we don't make a reg change, is not going to hit the market. So there's a whole set of products we started to see Fall in that category. So, go.
1: and so, based on all the things that we've heard and and that we've learned over the last few years, and, and all the, the consultations that we've done, you know, we've come up with a regulatory innovation plan, and um, really we're we're at that point of time now where it's time to translate that vision into concrete actions. And that plan that we're working on now, it really builds on a strong foundation of work that's already underway in our department to try and improve access to those essential medicines. Um, A lot of the focus has been on trying to improve our our coordination and collaboration with our healthcare system partners like Cadet and Ines, or um, improving collaboration with um, other trusted regulators internationally so that we can make sure that um, there's more alignment across our regulations. And now, as we're trying to set ourselves up for the future, really the focus of our new innovation plan is very much like I said at the beginning, about how can we support innovation by making regulations more agile without reducing that safety bar. And so, our regulatory innovation plan comprises five pillars, and it's really intended to span the entire life cycle of a health product. So, starting first with clinical trials, as uh, David pointed out, we need to change our clinical trial regulations to make them more flexible so that we can accommodate the new types of trials that are out there. David mentioned uh, virtual trials, making sure that we can increase increase recruitment of people living in rural and remote areas in Canada who can't make it into the big centres or hospitals in our our major cities. Or uh, platform trials where they're looking at multiple different drugs or devices at the same time to to understand uh, diseases and conditions. And so we really need to have an appropriate risk-based approach to oversee that full conduct of the trial, so that we can align with our best practices of international regulators, and that ultimately the end goal is to make sure we're attracting more trials into Canada, so that we can have more research and, and good outcomes. The second pillar, and this one is um, is an exciting one, it's it's the creation of a new pathway for those advanced therapeutics products that are just so new and so complex that they fundamentally challenge our regulatory system. So a lot of those examples that David was talking about from AI-enabled health products that are just continuously learning after we give them a stamp of approval or um, 3D bioprinted product that's made at the point of care at a hospital, which is different from our traditional structures that are, you know, more aligned with a company making products in a, in a manufacturer where there are drug establishment licenses and a framework intended for that. And so the new pathway provides us this ability to, called, to create what's called a regulatory sandbox. And that sandbox, the notion there is that it's a space where we can address the challenges of those products by creating tailored market access requirements specifically for those types of products. And what, why that's flexible is that it gives us that ability to actually work with people in the field, with experts in the field to help us develop those requirements and to you know, align with international regulators where it makes sense. We can sort of pick and choose the parts of the regulations that should be applied to those products um, or we can, we can leverage other, other requirements as, as we need to. We can adapt the requirements over time. And then the end game is that once we're comfortable with those requirements, we take it out of the sandbox and we adapt our regulations so that it's suitable for the future. And so that's really for those those products that are really unique. Most of our products will continue to go into our traditional system. And that, that leads to sort of our third and our fourth pillar, which is how can we make sure that our everyday licensing structure that is fundamental to the work that we do Still be flexible and agile enough to deal with the with the pace of innovation, and so really, what the focus is there is um, you know given the fact that our regulations are so old, we see this new opportunity opportunity now to make sure that our regulators have the right flexible tools to be able to oversee a product a product across its whole life cycle, so not just before it goes to market but once it 's on the market and being used by Canadians, and making sure that we 're regulating according to the the vast array of risk that exists in the different products that we see. Um, again, this is a common theme. We're looking at ways that we can align internationally and make sure that we're collaborating with our partners. Um, and ultimately making sure that we're just we're we're regulating in an optimal way. We're optimizing the benefits, we're minimizing the risks, and we're managing those uncertainties. And then last but not least, um, and this is sort of a, a fundamental part of our of our mandate, right? We have to assure safety, efficacy, quality, but We also have to make sure that we're giving Canadians credible information about health products. Um, And I'll be honest, finding information now on our website is uh, a little bit challenging. It's hard to navigate. And, you know, most of us want information at our fingertips on our mobile phones and and so on. And so we're developing a strategy to be able to improve, make it easier for Canadians to access information about health products on, on their mobile phones. So... That in a nutshell is our regulatory innovation plan. We're at the very beginning of this journey in terms of of implementation Um, and we we know we have a a long road ahead before we'll start seeing uh, concrete results, but I know Personally, something that is very important for us to ensure success of, for our implementation is to make sure that we're continuing to have meaningful engagement and conversations with a variety of stakeholders. So I'm really looking forward to um, hearing your questions and, and um, opening the floor to that. There are two mics that you can go to to ask your questions. Et uh, je vous invite de, de, de demander vos questions dans la langue de votre choix. Just have a question: If you have any examples that
3: you can speak about that have made their way through of the either the devices or things like that that have benefited already from the modernized process or the regulatory sandbox or anything like that.
1: So I will put that caveat: that we really, really are at the very beginning. Um, we don't, like the sandboxes are not quite operational yet. We have the authority to do it, and that was in and of itself a huge win to be able to adapt our Food and Drugs Act recently through Budget 2019. And so now we're in the process of just trying to make sure that we've got all the operational readiness in place to be able to do that. But all that to say, we're having conversations with stakeholders. We're open to having those conversations and seeing a lot of, a lot of um, interest out there. So...
2: Yeah, maybe I could add just a couple of things. One is that the instrument is now legally available. It's basically a, a scheme where we can license at the level of the act, but we set out uh, the form and manner that you apply to us and the contents that we need. But that's a learning exercise. So we've identified a few sectors that may be priority um, that we need to have a good exchange on, because, again, you're, you're sort of learning how to regulate as you're regulating. We're also doing this with other regulators, which is a, a good thing. We're, everybody's grappling with the same kinds of technologies coming in, the US FDA, the European Medicines Agency. So as a core group, we're sort of looking out and saying, what do we prioritize? What do we think is really going to be disruptive in the system? And of course, on the issue of uptake, we also want to make sure that we're not just allowing things in that nobody knows what to do with, that there is kind of a a sound discussion, I think, from like a pull model, what technologies are really important to our, our healthcare system. So we're looking at those, and then there'll be an exercise of we have to schedule something as, a, as an advanced technology and then say what the requirements are.
3: Just a quick follow-on. Um, given that you're working with other regulators, um, will there be some kind of appropriate fast-tracking if things have been approved, say, by FDA or something like that, for Canadian use then?
2: So on the, that'll fall in the agile regulation. So yes, on some of the more advanced side, but we are looking at areas where... And some of our really important areas are, um, for example, unmet medical need drugs that just have not been filed here or devices, where uh, if we could use the, the trusted sort of source, FDA, EMA, other regulators that we're very familiar with, uh, we are looking at that in the regulatory model. Pediatric medicine, we don't have enough formulations here the, and information, so we're looking at also looking at other sort of decision makers so that we could work more closely together. But we're also reviewing together more, um, which is also a good thing. I mean, if, if you're a Canadian startup and you want to go to the FDA, I mean, having us in the discussion, because we talk with, we talk with our partners all the time, isn't a terrible thing. Um, so from a developmental point of view, as our innovation ecosystem grows, I mean, that's a hopeful that we stay all sort of united in that, in that global approach.
1: I can build on that just to say, too, that in the context of that sandbox, when we get to that point, um, you know, we do have that ability to create the requirements that we think make sense. But if there was another regulator that already had um, d- developed a certain guideline for, let's say, I don't know, digital health or AI, for example, we could choose to look at those guidelines and use that as a basis for the requirements. So really have that in mind that Harmonization and alignment is so key to be able to um, enable companies to submit applications in multiple countries at the same time um, in, a, in a harmonized way
3: my question i'm i 'm a resident citizen, whatever, I have n- uh, no connection with the medical field. But my question's about false positives on nuclear medicine machines. Um, this happened to me. Nobody ever mentioned that there could be false positives, and I'll explain in a minute. I had to wait 46 days for an angiogram, and I'm not really complaining, but I've got to tell you the impact on me as a person living alone. I thought I was going
2: to drop dead on the floor before perhaps I would get a stent that I needed Guess
3: what? False positive, I have no problem. All arteries are clear. So, I don't want, I got impeccable care at the Ottawa Heart Institute. It's weightless. It's also false positives. Are you guys looking at false positives with these machines or what?
2: So, we're redoing the regulations for across all of the product lines and that would be one that's included. Um, and yeah, there's we do need to do a lot better on that side. Diagnostics and how we regulate them and how they're performing, it is a hard thing to get a line of sight. But we've increased, uh, for example, uh, we we introduced things like uh, mandatory reporting in healthcare institutions. So if you are in one and, and people pick up that something happened to you, that it's now a matter of law that the institution has to tell us. And then we can sort of take a look and intervene. So we've and we're actually trying to move to models that it's more proactive surveillance. We, we're sort of trying to figure out where do we really need to look. And so the more, you know, you tell us what's happening, we can sort of design what our surveillance models are. And, and increasingly, we're actually asking for surveillance plans so we can pick out those. You know, what do we expect to happen that might be an injury? Or if, some, if we start to see something, how do we monitor that better? Because uh, you're right, I mean, injury, uh, drug device injury and diagnostic can, can occur with a, quite a prevalence. So those are all in the new design. And then in the old 60s design, it was very pre-market. I mean, people, you know, we would look at the product in, in a clinical trial, idealized population, well-selected, and then it would go out into the market, and, you know, there wasn't a lot of regulatory oversight once you were there. And so the new model is increasing that. Quite, quite profoundly Is that, does that help with your yeah and'll I'll go back and mention to that group uh, as as we're working the the ones that regulate the PERS, yeah
1: anybody else anyone else one has question
2: We're regulators, but we're friendly. <laughs>
1: Um, the need for streamlining between the regulatory process and the reimbursement process mm-hmm. with Cadis and Ine- mm-hmm. Um Could you talk a little bit more about what that might look like? You know, we know uncertainty is a big part of
4: the decision-making process for mm-hmm. funding. Mm-hmm. Um, have those discussions started, and what do they look like?
1: I'd say absolutely. I mean, sort of the there's been another huge transformation exercise uh, occurring in our, in our branch um, related to sort of improving the regulatory review process for drugs and devices. And really one of the central tenets was improving that collaboration with our partners and, and trying to actually do the reviews in a very joint and parallel way as opposed to it being a linear process. So with the, with the view of trying to sort of speed up that process so that it can get into the hands of Canadians earlier. Um, I think the question of uncertainty is, is a big thing, and I'm sure David can, can speak to that, but I do, I know that a lot of what we're doing now is um, in our agile licensing is trying to make sure that we're getting better information and having the right tools to be able to manage that uncertainty effectively.
2: Uncertainty is a huge uh, component of the discussion now. I mean, the old regulations, when we approved, we said the drug was or device was safe and effective. Both are, you know, that doesn't suggest a lot of uncertainty. But I think most regulators now are seeing that uncertainties are there at the time of marketing and beyond that. And then you, you find responsible ways to resolve them. That's, that's sort of how you look at it. So we're putting in things from Vanessa's law, like terms and conditions, where the model will affect the decision makers for reimbursement as well because you may have an early phase drug come out for a, for a, for a cancer, for example. We think it performs well in the clinical trials, but you can then follow it out more and ask ask and answer more questions, and they have questions too. some of it will be value of you know value for uh, endpoints that we don't look at, like like safety, but it may be quality of life markers that they they want to look at. so how you design that more into the way we approve and how products go out there and get used it it will it will may give them a more of a decision point as well, not just at the first time it's marketed and there's the most uncertainty for reimbursement, but also again when some of the data accrues and we get a better look at is it doing what we think. So that, that's a new model, but I, I think we're all we're all very interested to see how that will adjust the dynamics.
5: Uh, good morning. Thank you for your presentation. Uh, just wondering if you have any specific metrics attached to this uh, revamping process. How will you and how will we know if you're being successful uh, through these changes?
1: We're we're starting <laughs> to develop some. Um, we we have some baseline ones, um, but it's it's part of my my vision to be able to create ones that are truly meaningful um, and that we can actually. Measure success from the point of how are we actually becoming more agile and supporting innovation. Um, we're in early days yet, so not not yet, but we're getting there.
2: So as we're going with the as we're making the regulations, it used to be more of a discussion, but I think we do want to bring it up to the fore. and And frankly, our our boss, who's in charge of the regulatory in, uh, agency, is is really interested in metrics. So how do we understand whether a new regulatory intervention? Is supposed to, you know, perform. Actually, there's a stock review that Treasury Board is asking for, and it's saying, don't just put something in place, but make sure you're taking care of it from a regulatory point of view. So you go out with a, with a proposition that this new pathway will perform well, but there, we need to design a way of understanding, did it? And do we need to make uh, adjustments? Because if you think of what I'm redrafting right now, it's like it was the 60s. So you know that's that's quite a space in between it was working then and is it working now. I think what they want to see in the central agencies is let's keep an eye on on how it does so that's again something that is newer for us to do but it it's something we'll be accountable for so that's a that's a really important discussion actually that's that's coming in i'm I'm happy for it because that can prompt us to adjust more more regularly hopefully
1: I think also we have to be creative because how do you measure actual access when we're only one piece of the equation, right? If we give that stamp of approval, but it still has to go through the, the value um, evaluation, funding, considerations, and then ultimately you know, into the hands of Canadians. And so, um, yeah, it's going to be a creative approach for sure.
6: Um, uh, thinking of uh, small-medium enterprises looking to corner market or global companies looking to... Invest in specific countries. How how are you reviewing what's going on elsewhere in the world in order to give that advantage? Because at the end of the day, that's you know it, it comes down to regulations. How do you how do you make sure something's safe while at the same time get that economic benefit from it? It's that constant that constant constant um, tug and pull. So how are you looking what's going on in other countries in order to help our small medium enterprises get first mover advantage here? as well as taking a look at the global companies looking to invest in Canada because it's that regulatory-friendly market here in Canada.
2: So maybe I can start and then... Uh, so when we did the foresight exercise I mentioned, we actually did it in conjunction with many other regulators. We, we have a group that pulls together all the heads of regulatory agencies around the world. And the heads assigned us to do a foresight stream because we're all having to figure out the same equations and what we did was we tried to take you know a sector look and driver look but we also said look can we can we bring in some pilots can we look at some actual companies in early stage development and so we chose some that you know frankly their academic addresses are still on their business cards cuz they're you know they're that much of a startup but they've got a great idea and we were modeling through each of the agencies how would we how would we regulate this product and so we've been I think the exciting part is is that we, we found there were some differences, but I think there was a willingness as regulators to look at things uh, in common. The good news for a small entity then coming from Canada is that if we keep up this innovation network together, that if you start in Canada and you can start early advice with us and we can talk to our colleague regulators, that sort of sets up a, a, a you know, a path to success, or could, thats arguably. I mean, we're all going to be strict about the safety requirements and and how we regulate it. But that we are talking all the time about these products, I think, uh, creates a a, a more favorable environment.
1: And I think, I mean felt like I said the word international alignment like five times in my, my presentation. I was worried I was getting repetitive there, but it is a central tenant in, in a lot of our different pillars of our work. Um, you know, As David alluded to, we're, we're actually trying to wire it into our current licensing system to be able to make sure that we can leverage the reviews or the decisions of other regulators when it, when it makes sense, like when there's an unmet health need. Um, or if it's in that context of a sandbox, like being absolutely open to, to kind of be in the sandbox together and, and leverage the thinking of other regulators so that we really can make, it, make Canada an attractive market. Um, the other thing too, I, I, I didn't mention in the context of this new pathway that we're creating, also recognizing, you know, especially for small, medium enterprises or um, clinician entrepreneurs, you know, how complex it can be to navigate the system, the regulatory system. So for this new pathway in particular, we're we're creating a, a concierge service to support innovators through that new pathway. So that's something that um, hopefully will help as well in terms of uh, making our uh, our market more attractive.
2: Yeah, we did hear a lot out there that we're, you know, a bit monolithic and our website just doesn't <laughs> help anybody. So, so really having an interface that's very interactive and understanding where the, the new entities are coming from, again, especially some of the small, medium, uh, is, is the goal there. A in that you guys can go visit yeah, okay, yes. that, I, I think that's great. We, we are looking for incubators. In fact, we did a lot of our work yeah. in, within the incubator
1: uh, environment. I'd say that a, a huge part of our, our foresight work and our continued engagement has been really based on connections with the publicly funded innovation hubs, Mars, Vector, uh, MidTech, you know, a whole bunch of them, and they're really helping us sort of filter in to the rest of the um, innovation ecosystem. So always keen to, to um, get new connections and to meet with them, and if anything, just trying to promote a culture of openness within our branch. As David said, we're, we're regulators, but we want to be open and have conversations too because we're, we're here to help.
3: More. Thank you so much. So first of all, thank you for a very inspiring presentation. I have a question if you can mention or you have any estimation about the timelines when these regulations will really come into force, and how will you handle all the innovations which are already on your table and probably challenging the current regulations until then?
1: Um, in terms of the timeline, I mean, this this regulatory innovation plan is meant to span over the next five years. And so if you're actually interested in the timelines, I'd encourage you to go to the forward regulatory plan on our website. Um, I think the the next one is going to be updated in April, so you can get uh, a glimpse of that. And in terms of managing the current uh, challenges we have, David, anything you want to say about that?
2: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty constant. And in fact, what, what the foresight has also given us is We put that into our hiring strategies. Our executive management is talking more. uh, The drug people actually talk with the device people. And that's raising our efficiency for some of these products that we really need to figure out how to regulate. The other thing is that, again, uh, there are some good formative guidances coming out of other jurisdictions. So U.S. is coming out with some more AI rules and so on. So that also helps us to sort of see where things will be going. And we're trying to bring that into our review cycles as fast as possible. And some of it will need reg change, but if it doesn't, we're just trying to adopt.
1: One thing that, you know, David was mentioning drugs, people talking to the device people, we've actually just launched and and created a brand new medical device directorate within our our branch. Um, Seems like a... A small thing, but it's actually quite significant. It really goes to show that we're paying attention to the fact that innovation in the med device space is, is really growing and it requires its own dedicated um, group with, with integrated experts, both on sort of a pre-market and the post-market side, um, a whole uni- unit dedicated to digital health. So we're really trying to focus where the innovation is going.
6: So uh, on that note, which is a really positive one, uh, I'm Bill Charnetsky from Point Click Air. I'm back. Um, I really want to thank the two of you. Uh, like, I've been at this for quite a while in both the biopharma and now with point-click care, more on the devices side. Um, and I really do want to acknowledge uh, the great work that you're all doing. And, I mean, it's reflective of one of those points I made earlier how important it is to split apart the biopharmaceutical public policy and regulatory levers from the rest of health innovation. And, and you've really done that. I also know from personal experience through Council of Canadian Innovators and other places that you both have been open with your time as you have your as have your colleagues, and uh, and that's uh, it's really great stuff. So keep it up, um, and we look forward to working with you. So thank you very much.
4: Good afternoon. Um, I'm so pleased to be here today, and uh, I'm glad to see that the snow hasn't hit Ottawa yet. I've been texting my husband to see when is coming from Toronto to Ottawa. So. I- so I know when to fly back. (laughs) Um, My name is Rebecca Yu, and I'm the Vice President in Market Access and External Affairs for Takeda Canada. Takeda is a global pharmaceutical company that specializes in neurosciences, oncology, gastroenterology, and rare diseases. These are areas where developments in innovative medicines are happening every day. In fact, as the largest manufacturer of drugs for rare diseases in Canada, Takeda is particularly excited to engage the federal government on their plan to develop a strategy for drugs for rare diseases. Founded in Japan 238 years ago, Takeda's mission is to strive towards better health and a brighter future for people worldwide through leading innovation in medicine. Our mission is driven by the values of putting the needs of patients first. In fact, all of us have been blessed to be a recipient of the products of the incredible work from many innovative minds in Canadian healthcare. The other required ingredient essential in developing de- delivering healthcare innovation is collaboration by stakeholders, including government, patients, researchers, and industry. I have learned and experienced this through having been part of effective public par- private partnerships where cross-sectoral collaboration has been a key success factor. This approach is one that is also embraced by the speaker that I am very honored and pleased to introduce right now. The Honorable Mary Eng is the Minister of Small Business Export, Promotion, and International Trade. She has been a member of the Parliament since April of 2017, representing the riding of Markham Thornhill. Mary has a background in political science and a wealth of experience in public service. Mary is a devoted community leader who has always believed in the power of public service. She has 20 years of experience in areas of education, women's leadership, job creation, and entrepreneurship. She immigrated to Canada from Hong Kong with her family and grew up learning about the struggle and eventual success that many new immigrants experience in Canada. Mary's success speaks to the values of all Canadians. On a side note, I have personally witnessed the minister living these values on a daily basis through her dedication and commitment to the communities and the portfolios that she represents. And I'm a big Twitter fan, so I would say hashtag I am a fan. (laughs) Minister, we're all looking forward to hearing from you and learn more about your government's efforts to support health innovation. Please join me in welcoming Minister Ng.
3: Rebecca, thank you so very much for that, and uh, it's, great to, it's great to be here. Um, if you give me some of that snow projection, that will then uh, help me with my flight uh, back to the riding, but that doesn't happen until I'm done with Parliament, so somehow I feel like I might actually get stuck right in the middle of it. Um, but thank you so much for that uh, wonderful introduction, and uh, bonjour à tous. And before I begin, I want to acknowledge that we are gathered today on the traditional unceded territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg people. And a big thank you to 2020, Canada 2020, uh, for inviting me here today. And I'm really looking forward to the important discussion that we will have about healthcare care innovation. Right now, in, um, in the public health space, COVID-19 is still overwhelming our headlines and I can assure you that we are all monitoring this rapidly evolving situation closely. Public health authorities across Canada are working together to ensure that we are prepared. And we will continue to work together to ensure that we remain prepared and that we limit the impact here in Canada. Recently, Canada's National Microbiology Lab in Winnipeg has implemented testing to diagnose the virus the Public Health Agency of Canada has instructed the International Disease Centre at the University of Saskatchewan to assist with the global search for a vaccine. And Canada certainly has a role to play, and we will continue to work with our international partners to address this virus. From the discovery of insulin to the invention of the pacemaker, Canada has had a strong record of being a leader when it comes to health solutions and innovation. And as a government, we have made it a priority to put the right conditions in place that will allow innovation and innovators to thrive. This is why we are supporting researchers who are pioneering new approaches to protect the health of Canadians. For example, the Ebola vaccine. It was developed by scientists working at the Winnipeg Microbiology Lab, the one I just mentioned, and our government owns the intellectual property rights to that vaccine which is helping to fund the upgrades to the lab. And this lab and our Canadian scientists are taking on the COVID-19 challenge today. So for these technologies to be discovered and developed, we must not only have the right experts at the table, but we also need proper regulatory frameworks in place to allow experts to innovate and to adapt leading-edge technologies. A recent example is how our government has consulted with Canadians on a new approach to fast-track the review of treatments for rare and serious diseases. To help support people living with these diseases, we are streamlining the review process to ensure that they get treatments that they need as quickly as possible. To find these kinds of solutions, we must invest in innovation, which is exactly what our government is doing. Canadians are innovative, And they are entrepreneurial and we are taking a new approach to industry and government collaboration to help foster the innovation and this growth last july i launched the can health network present in british columbia alberta saskatchewan manitoba and here in ontario and hopefully more provinces soon um, because we have all heard this familiar story here in canada A Canadian business with a great idea looks first perhaps to other markets like the U.S. um, to sell more or to scale and grow their business. So what would happen is that this product or technology is outright purchased by a global multinational or the business, the Canadian business, relocates due to the gravitational pull of its largest market leaving Canada missing out on this opportunity for leadership the can health network acts as a single window through which businesses can access billions of dollars worth of opportunity here in Canada as an interconnected national network it allows canadian innovators and entrepreneurs to connect directly with canadian healthcare organizations and hospitals to better understand the needs of the healthcare system across this country. It also helps them collaboratively research, develop, and refine Canadian medical technologies, making them market-ready for sale and export. All while being anchored in Canada and creating good jobs for Canadians. After the first sale is made, within this integrated market, the CanHealth network, these technologies can then be sold to. Anyone in this network, enabling the company to grow by using the purchasing power of Canadian healthcare procurement. By harnessing this economic opportunity with leading SMEs and scale ups, we will build Canadian leadership in health and biosciences technology, creating global companies that anchor thousands of middle class jobs here in Canada. Let me give you just two examples. A Toronto-based surgeon created a company, and the company is an app. It will provide better care for patients and also reduce, help to reduce ER visits and cancelled surgeries. This business puts pre- and post-surgery information on an app. It will benefit from being in the CanHealth network because it will be provided with access to real data, real patient data, that could further validate and improve their product. Another example. Everyone in this room knows uh, the advancements and the importance in digital health and in robotics and in AI. The second company, made up of data scientists, medical coders, and doctors, is building and using machine learning and AI to support hospitals to save money. Starting with a pro- starting with a product that is focused on hospital patient records, all the while respecting personal privacy. This is a great Canadian story. It's it's a story of how investment in innovation will not only help our healthcare system, but it will create good life sciences jobs for Canadians and using the CanHealth Network it will help them scale, and it will help them grow. And since the launch of July, so CanHealth Network has only been here since July, the network has been onboarding hospitals and creating an inventory of companies interested in participating. And I can tell you here in Ontario, and thanks to the CanHealth Network in Ontario, projects are already getting underway. So stay tuned for upcoming announcements. I'm proud to say that the Can Health Network is unlike anything that has been done in the Canada, in the Canadian health marketplace. As a nation of innovators, we need to be bold to continue to drive our economy forward. Where there is no path, we must forge one. Innovation in healthcare today is all about partnerships and creating stronger Canadian technology ecosystem, where our entrepreneurs. Can access the support that they need to grow and to remain in Canada. And dare I say, as the minister responsible for small businesses, expert promotion, and international trade, these companies that are going to grow here in Canada are going to export and export into the international marketplace. And a plug for the kind of access that we have to the global marketplace. Canada has access to some 60% of the world's economy through the free trade agreements that we've negotiated. We're the only G7 country that has a free trade agreement with every other G7 country. That's market access. That's customers. This is how we will keep Canadian innovation Canadian, improve the quality of life for everyone, and we're going to foster economic prosperity across the country. Thank you so much for listening to me. Merci beaucoup, and I look forward to the conversation.
6: Uh, hi, everybody. I'm Peter Cleary. I work at uh, Santa Santa's Health as a senior consultant, and I get the fun and enjoyable job of having a conversation with you about uh, that and many other things. Um, let's start with PTs. Okay. Uh, so uh, it's been an interesting um, trend, and we heard from a chief, our chief economist this morning from from U Ottawa. Uh There's a lot of big things that we probably see most of, so health spending, transfers, pharmacare, rare drugs... All of that will consume a lot of time and attention. We'll probably see a lot of fights between provincial health ministers. But from your perspective, what is the what is the relationship with provinces and territories, and how have things changed? Looking through the lens of your portfolio today.
3: Well, you're right. I mean, all of the issues you just talked about is going to take a lot of time. And uh, and since I'm the minister for business and expert promotion, I get to uh, I get to look at it and do the work with that vantage point. In mind, and I, you know, and I think the integrated market and the Can Health Network, it is, is it's, it's really an example of how we are collaborating and working together, so that we can grow the Canadian entrepreneurs, those who are the health innovators, and those businesses operating in this particular area, um, and to grow them. Literally across the country. So I would say that, uh, you know, and and um, uh, if you think that uh, that collaboration doesn't matter, it absolutely does. Um, you having scientists who are practicing their science freely, having researchers do that work freely, having um, a government that wants to support this work through that. Research stage and that scientific discovery stage to then commercialize and grow into our marketplace, which is some of the work that we're doing is absolutely essential and that's the opportunity that um, that is that is uh, that is present that's the opportunity that we have been working on and uh, and the continued work that uh, that I get uh, to that I get to focus my time and energy on
6: does it does it get enough attention and i I ask this only because uh, I, I think a lot, of, a lot of our focus is on those big policy issues, and I think it will be in a minority context. And it, this might be a bit of a softball, but is it, is it fair that a lot of this work that's happening behind the scenes doesn't get the attention that it does? And how, how do we bring these stories out so that people can see what sort of work is happening Collaboratively, co- collaboratively between the public and private sector, and between multiple jurisdictions.
3: Yeah, I think talking about it absolutely helps, and uh, and I wouldn't say that it actually is even happening behind the scenes. Um, this government has been very clear about its innovation agenda. It has been very clear about the investments that we have been making to help companies start up, help them scale up, help them grow and grow into the international marketplace. The integrated market in which is the Can Health Network is that innovation. It is the investment in in a national network of, um, of those who have access, well, those who are the decision makers of literally billions of dollars of health procurement across the country, taking on a role that will work directly with Canadian enterprises, Canadian researchers, Canadian technologies who have found themselves needing to enter into a market through other markets that are not anchored here in Canada. So I think talking about the examples, I think um, I think the companies, I think the entrepreneurs, I think the institutions who are participating on this, I think we are going to see some of those examples come through, and I think that real work that actually is. Uh, that, it, that, uh, that is cross-jurisdictional, um, that has leadership uh, at the federal level, certainly leadership on the part of the entrepreneurs and on the businesses and on the part of those institutions who make it their business to, um, to look at what is being developed here and to adopt that and to be the first customers, of these very technologies or solutions means that 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 will take hold. Um, It will take hold because it's creating real solutions. And the real solutions for these companies is also growth, job creation. And not only growth in Canada, growth that gets anchored in Canada because we have significant procurement dollars that will go to these and that in that growth anchored in Canada, we get to take some of these companies and start selling to International cup, uh, customers
6: so what is the role then for for the Canada health Network what is the role for uh, beyond SMEs then so uh, you kind of alluded to you want to you want to scale up the SMEs to uh, be engaged with larger multinationals uh, but is there also the opportunity for this sort of model to work not just for SMEs as well too, for those Canadian-based large companies to be able to access a network of health institutions in the way that this model is set up.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, the whole point of this is to create, um, it's to create the significant customer. And um, I've been hearing this, um, my colleagues have been hearing this, we've been working with businesses across the country who tell us that, uh, that getting into this market in Canada is particularly challenging, which is why they then look to, um, you know, they look south of the border, they look elsewhere as a way of entering in. But, um, but the beauty of this is, um, is this ability for significant health procurement leveraged by our hospitals and our institutions to work with those, that, those very discoveries or those very companies that have solutions and some of them will be SMEs, but it doesn't preclude at all um, a collaboration with, um, with a larger Canadian entity. I think what's important here is that we've created an integrated market. We've, the, Can Health work, the Can Health Network is bringing together those institutions who want to be a part of this. It is creating an inventory or working across the country. We have some 40 incubators and accelerators across the country. There are some real dynamic companies and entrepreneurs that are growing in this field across the country. It's being able to tap into that um, literally across the country and pull them in. Um, it's a push and pull. Um, companies will want access to the customers and understanding what the needs are is one part of it. And uh, and then having the commitment to um, to be that first customer for a Canadian technology or solution is the other part of it. And uh, and having um, and having that collaborative framework, a national network um, that really becomes a first very significant customer, is what uh, is what we will see grow and grow in Canadian jobs. But it it isn't just about the economics of the job creation. It really is that these are also the very solutions and the very innovations that is going to actually. Um, provide better care. At the end of the day, you're talking about uh, practitioners and uh, and administrators who are going to work together uh, to 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 come up with uh, to define what their need is, and then these uh, and then these um, innovators and companies and so forth are going to provide the response to that. So at the end of the day, it also really is also about uh, about better care for Canadians.
6: You have a um, you have a huge portfolio. <laughs> and when we think about having a conference on health in Ottawa and having the Minister of International Trade here, it doesn't necessarily follow a logical connection at first glance. But from your perspective, what, what is the opportunity in health for you? What excites you? What would get this room excited for things that you want to work on that could engage a group of health charities, companies, and uh, individuals who are just fascinated in the healthcare sector?
3: Well, what's so particularly interesting and exciting for me, um, and you're right, it uh, it doesn't seem like it's the logical thing to have the Minister of Trade or Business at uh, at Health Innovation, but um, but we are among the very best in the world. My job is to help Canadian Canadian enterprises, small and medium-sized businesses, but indeed all businesses, to grow and to prosper and to be competitive domestically here in Canada. But it is also, we are a small, we are a vast country, we are incredibly innovative and entrepreneurial, we have an incredible network, but we're also small by way of population. So our market growth really is not just domestic, but it is international. We have invested so enormously in the research capabilities through our universities and our institutions and our research institutions. We have among the best minds in the countries. In the country, and uh, and and the opportunity that is there for that that mashup, if you will, that connection between those, um, in fact, I suppose almost everyone in the sector. So everyone almost has a part to play. The institutions and the hospitals who are who are innovating. Who are looking for solutions, whether they are technologies or devices or whatever they may be, you have those who are developing it because we have a great uh, entrepreneurial system and a great business uh, ecosystem in Canada, and you have those who care about uh, about um, better health outcomes for Canadians, and uh, and 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 to be able to bring this together in that Canadian sensibility in that Canadian collaboration it's really important to me because there is um, there is a real there's a real scale here and there's a real economic advantage here because we are a uh, you know we are a single essentially we're a single system of health in Canada so our opportunity for that collaboration really is unlimited I think and For our healthcare system to be able to lean in and to create that collaboration means that we can make it in Canada, but we can bring our very solutions to the world. So, ergo, my job, which is to help Canadian entrepreneurs, Canadian businesses, our innovators grow, develop in Canada, and through a real leadership investment and focus, um, help them scale up and help them get access to significant procurement and uh, uh, health procurement here in this country, and in doing so, potentially creating some of those very solutions that we can export and export into the international marketplace. I know, I'm sorry, that was a very long answer.
6: No, it's fine, it makes my life easier. Um, (laughs) Let's talk about uh, AI, and the reason why I want to bring up AI Mm -hmm. is... Uh, we had GE Health here talking a little bit about uh, the role that they have been playing in that, uh, and I was doing doing a little bit of reading about some of the different products that are now available uh, in Canada or being worked on in Canada. Whether it's diagnostic imaging, trying to reduce error and and comparing a lot of different uh, scans to scans in the past to try and reduce that that error. Um, Health Canada was here earlier today talking about how do you regulate a product that is being built in a three three D printer in a hospital something we've never had to do before Mm -hmm. or just the entire world of medical devices where all of a sudden you're moving to having some sort of clinical advice being provided to you by a uh, machine rather than a human. So from your perspective, how do we, how do we, how do we deal with this? How do we capitalize it? And how do we serve up something that can be used for export or, uh, economic development?
3: So that's a very, very good question. And, um, and a whole-of-government approach is the approach that we are taking to this. I don't work in a vacuum um, outside of my colleague, the Minister of Health, and the uh, and the regulatory apparatus that she's responsible for. Um, Canadian, you know, sort of the Canadian brand is so super strong around the world. It's known for its integrity. It's known for its quality, it's known for uh, its responsible business practices, it's known, and uh, and that's, that's excellent. But why is that? It's because we actually have strong regulations that actually protect the health and safety on the one hand, but that actually turns to a real economic advantage as well. Um, and in these areas where we are forging ahead, this close collaboration that we are that we are doing sort of at at my level with my ministerial colleagues and certainly at the department level, but really on the ground. And if I if I if I use this integrated market as an example, it all sort of it all starts to merge on the ground in that way. Um, and AI is very much very very much a part of this. So um, so we're all we're all um, we're all forging ahead. And trying to keep up at the same time. But I'll give you kind of, um, I I have to refer to notes here because there are many, many examples. But just to give folks um, um, just an example of the kind of investments we are making in AI in the health innovation space and on what. I'll just draw a few examples, which means that we are, um, it isn't that we just want to do this, we are doing it. And we are, um, and we're providing the both the investment and um, and the support to those who are part of the solution, and uh, and and doing our level best. I mean, on this collaboration, so there is a fifty million dollar investment into an industry consortium for image guided therapy. This is a, an industry consortium led by Sunnybrook that will help. Advance um, that will use data to help advance the medical technology that's going to uh, that's going to use imaging to treat and diagnose and monitor disease. There is another investment on a scale-up platform where Invest Ottawa, Mars, in Toronto Communitech are joining forces so that they can take a new approach to accelerating high potential technology firms in Ontario, particularly around this. Area, there is an organization MedTech in Quebec that's developing innovative medical technologies to help them validate, um, so that they can help validate uh, the data that is being used in in our health system, and uh, and all of this, I guess, is to, is you know these examples, I guess, is just a, you know to highlight where we started, um, which is the potential is enormous, and um, and. And what uh, and what we're what we're focused on doing is uh, is helping invest in that and to nurture it along in a way that really does help us create a real Canadian advantage and a Canadian advantage that will I hope lead to better outcomes in delivery in um, in service. Um, uh, in 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 new solutions, uh, but also one that really will yield economic benefits to Canadians and creating those kinds of jobs in these emerging areas that Canada is so known for and ever more known for, and that we can really scale and scale in a way that gets us into the international marketplace so that that Canadian brand continues to uh, continues to grow. Uh,
6: the one area we have to do better at is. Um data how do we how do we actually take advantage of all this all this technology that we 're doing without a uh, this is uh, Jody Butts is going to start thinking i 'm just saying everything that she always says to copier because this comes up every single time mm-hmm. we have some sort of event. We have a couple really smart people in the room here who are investing themselves in data yeah. I mean we got Apple, which means they 're listening to everything that we 're saying right now obviously but How do we actually leverage? Sorry, Jacob. How do we actually leverage everything, uh, all of this information that's coming in, so you can actually build a system to to uh, to not just help help uh, improve diagnosis, but then the CMA was here today talking about how we can better uh, better have a virtual care strategy as well too, and it's one area that we just we just don't we don't do well as government because we haven't figured out how to regulate the space of data and privacy. And there's a lot of work that I know InfoWay and others are trying to do. Um, But it's one of these areas that we just need to do better at. And I think it's one that's helpful because it's where you have government, the private sector and patients and everybody probably aligned to get it done.
3: Absolutely. And in fact, I'm going to give a shout out to my colleague, Minister Baines, because we did launch a data charter. And uh, we are exactly digging into this Including, um, you know, including the privacy regime uh, that needs to complement our data strategy. As the Minister of Trade, I also lead Canada's efforts on our multilateral work um, internationally to ensure that we have a rules-based trading system that actually encourages and facilitates and helps adjudicate uh, trading. Around, uh, around our many, many borders. And, um, and the, the rules that we, uh, that we develop around tables like the World Trade Organization, like on e-commerce and like on data, uh, is exactly where Canada plays a leadership role. And uh, I lead a group called the Ottawa Group that is looking at uh, that is working on uh, on on modernizing um, the work of the World Trade Organization with a number of like-minded countries. So, uh, so you're absolutely right that uh, that work needs to be done in this space. And I would say we are doing that work, and we're going to continue uh, to do that work um, with the enormous um, the enormous talents that we have of those, you know, of those um, of that expertise can we do better? Absolutely. But we have certainly, we have certainly started down this road and, um, and you're absolutely right. We do need it and we need it. Uh, we need it, uh, ever more because this is, this is the space that our, our companies and our innovators are very much in. So we want to create, again, it's the same thing. You know, I'm always interested in making sure we create the Canadian advantage.
6: Uh, you have an interesting career, like the arc of your career. So, by way of background, uh, the minister was a staffer at Queens Park before I was a staffer,
3: mm-hmm.
6: uh, and then uh, there's a couple other people in the room who were probably here at that time.
3: Yeah, I know, I see them. Uh,
6: before you went on to the to the private sector you're at Ryerson, mm-hmm. correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, until you were at Prime Minister's Office, where yeah. uh, I had the pleasure of working with you, uh, and now where you are today. And how do you how do you in the role that you are now balance all those experiences based on? where you sit today. And I'll use just a small example. Uh, I was in agriculture in Ontario and we fought the Ministry of Environment constantly because (laughs) they wanted more regulation, we wanted less. Uh, Then I went to health where we wanted more regulation, economic development, wanted less. And that tussle is always uh, taking place. So how do you draw on the arc of your career with all the places you have been provincially and federally in the role that you have
3: today? What's interesting because, um, because I feel like what I do today is, uh, you know, draws on all of that experience. I mean, literally all of it. So you're right. That push and pull, I think, is perfectly good. I mean, these, uh, these functions exist precisely because you, that push and pull is actually what gets us the best outcome, right? I mean, so economic development, you're right. We'll want it uh, faster, quicker, easier. And, uh, and yet, as I said, why do we have the kind of reputation we have globally? Is because of those regulations and the way in which Health Canada and its role actually, you know, uh, does the careful, evidence-based um, work works. So that push and pull is really, really good. And having the, you know, having sort of uh, had the experience on. You know, on the civil service side, that then sort of led to uh, work on the political side. Just meant that it gives me a real appreciation for actually understanding um, um, people. I mean, um, and uh, and and there is sort of nothing more rewarding than sort of understanding um, what what we do actually means for sort of real people. Um, the work at uh, at Ryerson was really wonderful because we built out. One of the uh, country's leading edge incubators. And, um, and it is, uh, it is a place where, where entrepreneurs start their enterprises, they fail fast, they do new enterprises, and they grow, and they grow not only domestically, they grow internationally, and we grapple with things like how do we get you know how do we get access to capital how do we increase the number of female entrepreneurs in in in, in all areas and particularly in the health innovation space right um and uh, and that was really sort of good experience that sort of gave me a perspective about uh, about uh, the challenges for entrepreneurs in their entrepreneurial journey of starting and growing a company and making those very important decisions about whether or not that company or that investment that they're getting is going to pull them with that gravitational pull to be somewhere else. And, uh, and therefore, um, you know, therefore our leadership here in Canada um, is one that, uh, that we want to do better at, let's say. Um, And then, you know, and, and, and the decision that I made to run for office had everything to do with, um, with the, you know, the, 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 fellow who is the prime minister today. Um, And, uh, and we, I sit around a table, a cabinet table, where half of my colleagues are men and the other half are women. In 2015, everyone will remember when he was asked the question, why do you have a gender balanced cabinet? Well, because it's 2015. And and, and while I had the privilege of serving in that office, um, it became so important to me and so clear to me that you needed to see it to be it. So... And uh, and I would have thought that that was sort of obvious, but uh, but when 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 the opportunity presented, where one had to make a decision about whether or not you're going to put your hat in the ring to uh, you know to put your name on a sign and go out there and do that very public work of uh, of representing people, and to be able to uh, to serve in this capacity now is extraordinary. So, um, so I like to think that, uh, that I get the opportunity to serve today in this file, which I absolutely love. Um, it really builds on to much of the experience that, uh, that I've had, uh, you know, sort of both growing up. I grew up in a small business for those of you who don't know, I spent many years after I turned 16 and had a driver's license delivering Chinese food around, uh, the greater Toronto area. So I learned how to, you know, so I grew up in a small business. I mean, that maybe that would had something to do with how I got that, you know, how I was appointed to that file. Um, but but the experience really um, all of it really contributes to what uh, what frames uh, what frames and wh- and and how I I look at uh, how that contributes to what I get to do today. Thank you, Minister.
6: I think that's all the time we have. But I wanted to thank you for being here, taking the time, and engaging our crowd.
3: Thanks so much, Peter.
6: Uh, I get to immediately move to introduce uh, our next speaker, uh, queuing up uh, Alex Munter, who's the CEO of Chio. And I think it was my dream to introduce Alex, because Alex actually has known me since I looked 12, so pre-beard. Anyway, without further ado, Alex Munter, he's amazing.
7: I actually wasn't listening, so I don't know what you said, but I'm sure it was really good. So um, uh, nice to see uh, a lot of familiar faces, um, I'm not like the Iranian health minister denying I have coronavirus while I hack my way through a presentation, uh, but I will be hacking my way through this presentation because I have a 20-month-old toddler um, who goes to daycare, and, um, um, which is um, giving my immune system a turbo boost. Um, so um, I, I'd like to um, move this conversation uh, that you've been having about uh, innovation to what this feels like and is like Um, On the front lines uh, in a healthcare organization uh, as we do the work uh, day to day of delivering care, in the case of CHEO, uh, to children and youth and families. Um, And really, this is, I guess, the theme uh, for the conversation uh, that I want to have with you today. And, you know, I mean, one of the things I think is. popular to say is that the Canadian healthcare system is not sustainable on the current track that it's on. And this is, um, this is always trotted out by finance ministers as a, as a startling new revelation, uh, but I've actually been hearing it in Ontario for the last 30 years uh, because, in fact, the Canadian healthcare system has never been sustainable if sustainable means keep on doing exactly the same thing that we're doing now. The healthcare system has constantly been innovating and evolving and changing. And, you know, if I think about the organization that I lead, and I'll tell you a little bit more about it in a moment, you know, when, when Chio was opened in 1974, 80% of surgical patients were admitted, and 20% of surgical patients came um, for day surgery and left the same day. And today that's inverted. Only 20% of patients uh, that come for surgery are admitted, and 80% go home the same day. And um, we have a 20-bed surgical inpatient unit that is almost never full, uh, which is helpful because the rest of the hospital is usually surging over 100% capacity, so it gives us a place to put kids. Um, but that would have be been unimaginable uh, to the folks that open CHI.O in 1974, uh, that there would be a 20-bed surgical inpatient unit, um, and so that's happened not by one decision or one silver bullet. That's happened because of uh, advances in pharmacology, uh, in surgical techniques, and in medical approaches to treating uh, disease, uh, to care pathways, and that, frankly, is. Um, the the day-to-day work, the day-to-day innovation that happens in every healthcare organization, um, and the reason why uh, we have actually wrung a lot of efficiency um, out of the system. So CHEO, for those who don't know it, um, started in 1974 in acute care hospital, children's hospital. Um, and we are, of course, a hospital. About two-thirds of our activity is acute care, And one-third of our activity is community-based care. So autism, community mental health, children's development and rehabilitation, school-based programs, a school. Um, And, you know, really we are um, seeking to redefine what hospital means and really moving from a 20th century uh, definition of hospital uh, to a 21st century notion of an integrated care Delivery system working with um, about sixty partners uh, across the region to better connect care, uh, so that it uh, is easier for families to access uh, and um, uh, e- and 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 more efficient uh, to deliver. Um, I I can I, I need to always do this. I need to take uh, one slide to do a bit of propaganda about child and youth health. Um, uh, that because you know. Um, Kids are, and kids' health is not in the mainstream of the conversation about health care. The, the policy, the thinking work. I look at Jacob, how much time did you spend thinking about kids in the minister's office not picking on you particularly? Um, but it's, it's long-term care, it's home care, but since you're there. Um, long-term care, it's home care, it's, um, it's an aging population. And um, there's a misconception, of course, that the... Uh, biggest challenge that the health care system faces is the aging of the population. That's actually not right. The biggest challenge that the health care system faces in terms of sustainability is chronic disease. Chronic disease levels in Canada are markedly higher than the rest of the Western world. Uh, two of every three dollars in our acute care system is to treat chronic disease. And the single best intervention to address chronic disease is investing in child and youth health and putting kids on the path to lifelong health. So, it even just, if we were to actually make a significant dent in preterm birth, uh, adolescent mental health and addiction, and childhood obesity, uh, that would shake loose more than enough dollars to pay for all the long-term care and home care we need to pay for for seniors. So um, that is one of the reasons we need to, uh, to innovate. Um, the other reason, we call that pedionomics at CHEO, by the way, um, the other reason to innovate is to keep up with the expectations um, of the people we're there to serve. Um, and the fact is that in many ways, at many times, uh, we fail to do so uh, because the the healthcare system um, is not uh, built around the needs of patients and families. It's built around structures of organizations and uh, uh, disciplines and professions of the providers. Um, and that really the challenge then comes when we um, live in an environment where people are um, used to, have become used to, um, instant access to information, instant access to commodities, instant access to communications in every other aspect of their lives. And we uh, and then they encounter a healthcare system where almost none of that uh, happens on a reliable or consistent basis. And that, and that really is the, blur- the burning platform uh, for change and the need uh, for innovation. So I want to talk to you, I'll just give you some examples of some of the things that we have been uh, doing at CHEO uh, to give you an idea of um, how this conversation plays out in practical ways uh, at the front line. And then I'd like to I'd like to close by um, complaining to you about um, um, five big barriers that really prevent us from from moving forward with innovation. And I look forward to chatting uh, more with uh, with Jody and and with all of you. So um, we we're trying an experiment um, uh, this month. It's been running for the last couple of months, um, and it, it is uh, it rooted in the. Um, um, recognition um, that smart as the 4,500 of us are at CHEO, we're really not smart enough, obviously, to solve some of our most pressing problems because we've not been able to. Um, and so we've taken two of our biggest business problems and put them out to the community to try to crowdsource a solution. And the two that we have, we have lots, but the two that we identified, first is our emergency department, um, where we are seeing... This year, probably close to 80,000 um, kids in an emergency department that was built for 55,000 uh, 10 years ago. It's a 10-year-old emergency department. Um, and so lots of people end up in our emergency department because they feel they don't have better options. So um, so that's one issue we put out to the community. what are, How could we decrease our um, uh, the number of visits in our emergency department by 20%? Our other problem in our ambulatory outpatient clinics is that many kids wait too long uh, for the care that they need for, for, for an appointment. And so how can we re- reduce wait times for those that have scheduled appointments? So we put out a call. We got 85 proposals. Um, we, uh, those are shortlisted to 10. And, and they're basically... Um, I'm not going to tell you too much about it because I don't want to spoil the surprise. But they're, they're basically... Um, New and innovative care models and digital health solutions, and, and we're doing kind of a dragon's den uh, kind of um, event at the end of March. We're calling it Bear Cave because the teddy bears are mascot um, to and have people pitch them. and Our board of directors is actually prepared to invest in solutions that will have. Uh, a, a return on investment in terms of solving these problems, these business problems that our organization faces, but if you think about it, that are really um, problems that families um, are confronted with um, uh, in terms of the emergency department and getting a clinic appointment. Uh, so uh, we're excited about the prospect. as a different way for us to try to solve problems, and we're excited by what it might uh, produce, and it's really born of um, our... Um, Frustration, our board of directors, frustration with every year having to take more and more money out of the organization from, uh, in terms of uh, operating, uh, the, uh, the annual operating budget cut, um, and having an endless conversation about doing more with less, and, and trying to really uh, restart that conversation into being about doing uh, differently with the resources that we have. Um, we have invested in uh, electronic health record, so that um, uh, CHEO is one of the first uh, organizations uh, to sign up with Epic, um, and that uh, put us in the f- top one percent of uh, Canadian healthcare organizations for the digitization of our healthcare uh, of our clinical information. We're I think now in the top three percent as other as other hospitals uh, sign on. But I, I was just I was, I was chatting with a medical student. Um, yesterday, from a medical school affiliated with a very prominent teaching hospital that shall remain nameless, um, that's still on paper uh, in terms of uh, documentation, and I'll talk a, a bit about some of the barriers that um, that uh, that we face in terms of digitization. Um, um, but part of um, Part of the Epic Health Record, and for us it's new, and we need to expand its utility Uh, for families is uh, the patient portal. Uh, Patients um, uh, deserve access to their own health information. I'll talk about that a little bit uh, more uh, later when I talk about obstacles. Uh, And my chart is the start of our um, attempt to be able to uh, equip in our case, mostly parents, sometimes patients themselves, um, with the information they need about their care and the ability to have two-way communication uh, with their clinicians. Um, I, I do think that that is... I always. Um, um, I remember a conversation I had with uh, uh, a mother who called me probably about... I've been at CHEO since 2011, so this might have been 2013 or so, and we were still mostly on paper. And uh, what had happened was she had taken her uh, daughter to the emergency department, and there had been a referral to a specialist. And at that time, the way a referral to specialist was a green form with a perf- perforated line across the bottom, and it was the the um, the physician would write out the referral, and then a clerk would 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 rip it off the form, put it in an envelope, and mail it to the um, to the to the um, uh, to the specialist. And I remember her telling me this story. She said, and then they mail it. it, was, uh, it was, I thought she may, maybe had never used the mail before um, from the way she was talking about it. And, of course, you know what happened. Somebody forgot to uh, rip off the piece of paper or the, um, uh, the it went missing. Who knows what happened? But, uh, um, you know, the, the appointment never materialized. So, um, uh, Digitization really is about um, catching up with the rest of the world and the rest of the world's expectations uh, around business practices. But in so doing, uh, what we've created is a remarkable amount of data. And our health record is in partnership with SickKids. So we, um, uh, we developed the health record, then we gave it to SickKids, uh, and together, we iterated it into the next, uh, into its next version, uh, and uh, the 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 uh, just to, even just in the um, process of building across our two organizations, uh, the degree of quality improvement that we've been able uh, to generate has been considerable. Um, but we are starting to um, uh, sit on a remarkable repository of data. Uh, that is extremely powerful in terms of its potential for innovation, if we can figure out a way to use it uh, and, um, and and that is I think part of the uh, part of the discussion that we need to have. Uh, one of the ways we 're using it internally at CHEO is we 've established a command center, and we are now able in real time to understand um, where uh, patients are who 's waiting, when a room um, uh, comes uh, uh, comes uh, uh, comes available because patients's been discharged it 's not just clinicians who use this our cleaners are on our in our electronic health record um, it 's improved our turnaround time for cleaning rooms for patient flow for admitting um, kids from the emergency department into inpatient unit and our vision of course for this is it 's been profoundly helpful in terms of our internal operations and patient flow, reducing the number of cancelled surgeries, reducing the amount of time people wait. Um, But really where we should go with this uh, and where we want to use the, um, uh, in conjunction with our partners in the Kids Come First health team that we're building, um, is to have home care, have the residential addiction treatment beds, have the mental health crisis uh, beds, um, have all of those resources in the command centre as well. So it's actually a child and youth health command center. We can see the capacity more broadly across the system. Those are sectors that um, lag behind in terms of digitization. There has not been investment there. They do not have the means to do what Chio did, which is we borrowed uh, to build our electronic health record. Um, and so there will need to be um, investment from government to, to make that possible. Um, I see Jody itching there because I've run out of my time, so I'm going to move fast. I'm going to talk a lot about this. I'm happy to answer questions. This is the Better Outcomes Registry and Network, BORN Ontario, uh, which is housed at CHIO. Every birth uh, in the province is, is registered uh, there, the data from the birth, and that data then goes back to hospitals uh, for the purposes of quality improvement so hospitals can see. Um, this is uh, an example of... Um, uh, the, um, uh, the the scorecard that hospitals get, um, hospitals can see how they're performing against key indicators, and we can we know uh, that the Born uh, dashboard, the Born database, um, in pro- in providing that uh, scientific and technical leadership to the field has resulted in improving uh, maternal newborn care uh, in Ontario. Uh, rare Disease Day around the corner. Um, uh, care for rare. Really, um, a great example, Uh, you know, you hear a lot about personalized medicine, individualized medicine, and and really a vanguard of individualized medicine is uh, the rare disease um, uh, population. And, uh, you know, uh, rare diseases are common. There's three million Canadians that are affected uh, by rare disease, um, often um, spending years and years and years. Um, on a diagnostic journey to try to understand uh, the, um, the the mystery that is any particular uh, rare disease. Um, just to acknowledge Julie Drury, who's here, who's been such an important part. She and her daughter Kate, uh, in in uh, the discoveries that the Care for Rare program um, has been part of. That's Dr. Kim Boycott, our incoming. Uh, Chief of Genetics uh, at uh, Chio. And what Kim will always say is that the the genome, the sequencing of the genome, is going to, repl- is going to replace um, your personal history in your personal health record. So rather than sitting in your doctor's office and guess, I think my grandmother had diabetes or was that arthritis, um, it's all going to be in your genome and it's all going to be in your health record. Now, there's a whole debate to be had about that and what that means and about privacy. Um, uh, uh, and we can we can we can discuss that um, population health, obviously um, another enormous opportunity that we have in the data that we are starting to collect. talk about that um, uh, want to uh, talk a little bit about uh, shoebox um, because it 's an example of some of the barriers that the minister was talking about um, so that picture is Dr. Matt Bromwich. He's an ENT surgeon at uh, Chio. And he invented a hearing test system using an iPad. It's as reliable um, as the big clunky equipment that we send our CHEO Foundation fundraisers out to raise money so that we can buy. Um, and it fits inside a shoebox. It is, has huge uptake all across Africa where they don't have the means to be able to buy the clunky equipment and the trained staff to operate it. Uh, and uh, in parts of Canada, like Nunavut, where there are similar constraints, um, it is very hard to get adoption. in The province of Ontario, for a variety of issues related to uh, procurement uh, and other operations, and maybe that then moves me to my last slide, which is kind of the Rubik's cube we need to solve. And and I could identify, I'd like, to identify five issues that I think um, stand in the way of organizations like ours uh, to really be able to deliver on the full potential, the talent of our people and the data that we have. Um, so the first is that the uh, Canadian healthcare system is, is undercapitalized. So we have, we have people in our system in terms of skill, expertise, as good as anywhere in the world. Um, they work in old buildings, they work with old equipment, they work on paper instead of digital solutions, um, because of the way in which we fund hospitals and healthcare organizations, and the fact that we have a huge capital uh, deficit um, in, um, uh, in 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 the Canadian healthcare system. In a normal business, you make a capital investment uh, and you pay for it, the re- the, the return on that investment comes through increased margin, decrease or decreased cost, or both. Um, because we separate operating and capital in, the, in, in how we fund health care, that's not really possible. And so when CHEO borrows $25 million to build our electronic health record, it goes into our, our cost per weighted case. We are then deemed inefficient because we have a more expensive cost per weighted case and we're penalized financially. So the incentives in the system are, are, are wrong, uh, and the lack of capital investment, whether it's in digital health or infrastructure or other areas, um, slows, us, slows us down. Secondly is the micromanagement of our operations by government. So um, we have 62 funding agreements for our organization each of which require four or five uh, report, financial reports. I'm not talking about the clinical reporting we do. We're daily reporting bed count and clinical utilization, so I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about the money. So 62 times four or five. That means every single day. Today, somebody in our finance department is sending off a report to say how many hours of training our nurses in the neonatal intensive care unit did because that's you know part of the funding we get. We get money. It's got to be used for this child, this kind of child, and this kind of program. We get money that's got to be used for a social worker, not a nurse. We've got other money that's got to be used for a nurse, not a social worker, and on and on it goes. Um, I understand why. It, 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 um, it, it comes out of government's desire to have accountability for investment. It comes out of politicians' um, need to announce new programs. Um, but what it does is it completely constrains our ability um, to design programs and to innovate. Um, because We uh, have so many ring fenced buckets of money um, uh, that 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 uh, really we're in a compliance exercise to make sure um, are um, uh, deployed as 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 we are contractually obligated. Now we are as creative as we can within the rules and always compliant, um, but it is a constraint. It is absolutely a constraint to innovation. Thirdly, privacy legislation. It's been mentioned before. Privacy legislation, that really there's two things wrong with it. One is it's kind of written before any of us had smartphones or or any of the current technology was uh, envisaged. And secondly, the the premise of the privacy legislation is that essentially organizations own the data um, and have a custodial responsibility to protect the data when in fact... Patients own the data, um, and and so there's a kind of a, a disconnect between the regulatory legislative framework and both the reality and the challenges that 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 we face. So we sit on a lot of data that really we can't use, um, and I think there's a valid conversation to be had about you know where is the line between uh, you know protecting privacy and and using data, and uh, you know we will I think as a if we. If we all had that conversation, we would probably have different points of view in this room about um, the, um, um, where, where the right line is. But, but we, we kind of have to take on that conversation uh, and land it. Fourth, um, um, fourth obstacle is the rigidity of thinking around healthcare. care. So we all have an intensely geographic... Conception of healthcare, and what I mean by that is we we have very specific mental images of where healthcare happens. So if I say surgery to you, you'll think hospital, right? But why couldn't it happen at a strip mall, right? Um, when I say checkup, you think doctor's office, but why couldn't that happen uh, digitally, right? Um, when I say blood test, you think lab. But why couldn't um, we have self-serve options for for people, right? And and those kind of rigid options, those sorry, those rigid categories of healthcare and what's a hospital, what's not a hospital, then gets translated into people's expectations and gets translated into public policy. So the federal government, for example, will not fund infrastructure in hospitals, right? Um, but of course, hospitals are becoming very different things. Um, than a 1960s, 1970s conception of of hospitals. And then the fifth challenge around innovation, and then I'll wrap up, Jody, um, is the uh, fragility of the hospital-based research enterprise. So I've been um, at CHEO for eight years, um, and in those eight years, uh, there's been a shift in Ontario. When I started in 2011, the number one funder, of um, uh, in Ontario, of hospital-based research was the federal government, um, and today the number one funder of hospital-based research in Ontario is the hospitals themselves. Um, whether that is through um, uh, in-kind support from um, the mothership, from the from, from from the hospital corporation, or whether it's philanthropic, um, uh, the philanthropic work that the hospital foundations do. Um, and that that my friends is not sustainable um, because um, it has what it has done within hospitals it's put research in a, a competitive conflictual internal position um, uh, up against um, aged old buildings that are a safety risk against up against clinical equipment uh, that is breaking down uh, up against the needs of um, uh, of the operating needs of the hospital because, um, in, in real terms, of course, hospital funding has been decreased in the province of Ontario over the past decade, and now Ontario has fewer acute care hospital beds than any jurisdiction in the Western world other than Mexico. We're tied for Mexico in last place. So it's a very lean hosp- acute care hospital system um, uh, that, that needs resources and needs investment and is looking to. It's, we are looking to our philanthropic arm to do that, and it's a case of the urgent trumping the important. Like, it, 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 it's, it's, not, it's nonsensical that we would pull back on research so that we could fix our elevators. But that is those are the kinds of choices um, that organizations like ours are making. So... Um, on that cheery note and on the good news that you are safe in CHEO's elevators, um, I'll uh, I'll wrap up there and look forward to discussing with you, Jody.
5: Well, thanks so much for that. Uh, you highlighted uh, some really exciting initiatives happening at the hospital, but also some barriers to why we might not see more. Um, a really wise person wrote in 20, uh in 2016, that the key for the next big leap will be bringing together research, business, and government to support innovation. Who said that? And do you think it's happening?
7: Did I say that? I um, did say that. Is, <laughs> um, is it happening? I, I think it is sporadically happening. I think there's a lot of energy for it to happen. There's a lot of motivation for it to happen. So if you, you know, if you listen to, you know, what Minister Eng said is not that different than what you would hear from an Ontario cabinet minister from the current government in terms of uh, motivation and desire. So I, I think there is uh, good alignment. There's high uh, engagement in the, in, in the sector. Um, and then we're up against all of these institutional and policy barriers, right? And so part of it... And, and I understand... Um, so before I, before I was at, 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 at CHEO... Um, I was um, CEO of the Champlain Local Health Integration Network. May it rest in peace. And um, and you know, if there was a negative news story on the front page of the Ottawa Citizen, I would get a call from the minister's office prior to seven a.m. because they had to be ready to explain. Because in our system, when something goes wrong, it's the minister's fault, right? Um, and so I think that has just generated such a risk aversion around healthcare at the political level that if, you, if we're talking about innovation, and we're talking about trying ideas that may fail, if we're talking about testing the limits of privacy, all of those things, I think, um, uh, uh, you know, the the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak in terms of of, of being willing to take those risks.
5: Yeah. You know, it, uh, I really appreciated the, the the barriers you laid out. I was surprised procurement wasn't on your list because uh, that's something well, I, hear I would, about.
7: I would lump that in with micromanagement by government. Okay. Um, um, so uh, it it is an issue, and it is an issue with Shoebox, for example. So right. uh, so our ability to to you know we we, we know Shoebox works, um, but but we can't just go and buy it, right? Um, right. um And we're going through that right now with um, the cloud-based solution that we want to pursue for some of our um, um, uh, some of our business functions, and um, we've been in a six-month conversation about how we can legally do this.
5: Right, right. Um, so, I mean, what what I find so interesting about the the procurement example, and um, it's, uh, I think we're we're both referencing what, what what is a provincial regulation, but it's not that different at the at, at the federal level either. But um, you know, I had the privilege of, of sitting on a supply chain panel to advise the the then minister of health, and you know, every person who walked through the door, we asked you know, how should we change this procurement directive? Like, we know it's a barrier. We keep hearing it's a barrier. We want to give the minister good advice. And, you know, it's an entirely separate issue whether the minister is going to feel confident to to move forward with it, but we want to give the best advice possible. Nothing's off the table. And nobody gave a single suggestion. What it came down to, from many of the stakeholders' perspective, was that they felt it was cultural, that the fact that the board had to sign off, uh, had to sign an attestation, or just in general, the fear of uh, being called out for breaching the directive just kind of created a, a chilling effect. Um, and uh, I guess the, my question to you is, is, do you think that's a little bit about what's happening in terms of privacy as well?
7: Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, and and look, we, we have um, ransomware issues um, and hospitals across the world. We've got, you know, cybersecurity is, 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 is a concern of every hospital board, of, of every government. Um, we have um, legitimate concern on, on the part of patients and families about their, their, their private health, inf- personal health information. So, so I, I think it's, it, it's kind of, it's, it is a Rubik's Cube, and it is kind of um, unappetizing. For government to contemplate getting into this hornet's nest, that frankly there is no good answer, and that some constituency um, is uh, going to be disappointed, and possibly um, every constituency is going to be disappointed by some kind of compromise. So, so I, I understand why it, people are reluctant to take it on, um, but it is, you know, it it is it is impeding our ability to. Um, so, for example, the SickKids ChiO joint um, um, uh, joint instance, one instance of Epic, it's one build, um, but we've had to create, and it's it's artificial. We've had to create a firewall in between the CHEO and SickKids um, parts of the instance um, in order to be compliant with um, um, with uh, with with the current privacy legislation. And um, we are really not able, even quality improvement. De, I'm talking about our de-identified data, right? Um, quality improvement. Um, our our clinical researchers are not able to use that as one pool of data, um, even on
5: a de-identified basis. Yes. Yes. Hmm. Interesting. Um, so you know, I think I think that that like that really trying to get at the culture, and, and, and it's all the many players, you know, in the, in the system. Um, so it's not just about going to a single hospital or, or even a single government for, for that matter. So, you know, when you, you know, you take a step back and you kind of, you know, fly up into the clouds and, and, and you you look down on how the system's working, this example of working with sick kids is, is, is a really great one, you know, in, ter- in terms of healthcare. Are, is there anything that, that, that you're seeing that really points to, like, great collaboration and that, that—that's that, a good lesson learned for for how more innovation can happen through collaboration.
7: Well, I mean, I, I, I made a reference to Kids Come First, which is our health team that we've built locally, which includes um, all seventeen mental health and addictions um, agencies, all eight organizations uh, locally that to deliver care to. Um, kids at home or in an institutional setting to kids with, with medical complexity, um, uh, rural hospitals, um, uh, pediatricians. And, um, you know, we're very excited about the research potential that's there, um, the, the potential to find solutions uh, together. Uh, so, you know, I think there's lots of um, uh, motivation. Uh, this is the puzzle to me, right? Because I think everybody at the highest level agrees on all the outcomes and what we want to do, and then we get in this quagmire of um, detail um, that, um, that that really um, slows us down, right? Yeah. And so, and so part of it is, you know, we just need to go, right? We just need to do it, um, and that's a bit what our Eureka initiative is about. Mm. So um, we're just going to go. We're just going to do it, uh, and then hopefully, if it, wor- if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Um, if it works for us, then maybe we can scale it. Yeah. Um, uh, but, you know, we, we had to have a bit of an internal conversation about the risk that that entails. Mm-hmm. Um, when, um, like why would we invest in new and innovative solutions? Why wouldn't we put that money towards just hiring more nurses um, on our on our units, right? And so that, that conversation, you know, um, we got to the other side of that. Um, but you know that's a that's a very real preoccupation for people.
5: Yeah, no, for sure. And you know, so um, I guess it was July of 2015 when the Naylor report came out and talking about unleashing innovation, and really people really picked up on the problem of. Of um, not scaling innovations, that there's some really exciting things happening at an institutional level, but they're just not being scaled even across provincial systems, let, al- let alone nationally. Um, are you seeing some progress on that side um, that that you can talk to us about? And 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 if you're not seeing it, what what what's the the policy lever that that needs to be pull to, to really try and help that move forward? Yeah.
7: As with all things, there are, um, you know, bright spots. So in Ontario, the teaching hospitals developed um, um, something called Arctic, which was all about uh, spread and scale and, and, and shrinking that, um, you know, that that 17-year the, 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 lag um, between um, discovery and widespread adoption of uh, a new technology or a new practice. Um, so and uh, you know, I think there's there's quite a number of examples uh, like that. Um, funding for Arctic ran out. Um, you know, it's again, it's the it's the urgent versus the important problem. Um, I, I do think in Ontario we will need to do this in collaborative models. All of our organizations are too small on our own um, to be able to 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 pull this off. And so I think um, as we as we develop more kind of networks of, of providers, um, you know, this could be an ancillary benefit. Um, recognizing, though, that the work of building a network um, is, is, is where all the it, energy it's work. is. It's work, and it takes time, and it's building trust, right? So we're probably a few years away from seeing the benefits of that.
5: Yeah. Um, I think Bill Charnetsky earlier today talked about, you know, the the ability... Of uh, of people inside organizations um, to change, to, to be change leaders and change adopters. What what are you doing in, in at CHEO to to you know prepare um, all the all the smart, talented, educated, but maybe not all change hungry uh,
7: workforce. <laughs> So we've, um, we've tried to create what we call an improvement culture at CHEO, and we set a goal every year. I think this year we're up to about 2,400 improvements. And the, the, the premise is that the um, expert in the work is the person doing the work. Right? It's, not, it's not me. I'm not going to know how we could improve things in the neonatal intensive care unit. It's the nurses, the intensivists, the cleaners there, the food service people. And so, our improvement culture is all about, from really small to really big, um, empowering people to come up with ideas and to make uh, changes. Um, And we celebrate those, and we um, try to scale them through the organization. We try to create a culture. We call it it is a culture of improvement. Um, We have an improvement zone where we ask people to log in on the internet um, and really have a culture and a conversation about. Um, uh, uh, about, you know, when when we do orientation, uh, new employees and new physicians, um, part of what I tell them is um, you have two jobs. First job is whatever we hired you to do, and the second job is to improve whatever we hired you to do. Um, And then talk to them a little bit about the the tools we have in place to help them with that.
5: I I think that's really great because I think, you know, it's only natural. You were talking about the incentives built into the system. One of the the sort of natural outcomes of you know a global budget where money is just kind of transferred over is that um, you do get a little bit risk adverse. Like, and and that doesn't mean there aren't smart, capable people who who want improvement in the system. It's just you know, how you get your money and how, how, how it hits your bank account, you know, uh, does, does influence. things.
7: Well, and the other part is, is employee engagement, physician engagement, right? And uh, as, a, as a more general issue. And so it is one of the things that I do worry about is, um, uh, is burnout, is compassion fatigue, is the fact that we are about to have a huge exodus um, um, in terms of the baby boomer exit, uh, and 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 our ability to replace those folks um, is uneven, uh, in just in terms of health human resources gaps, um, and so then that puts more pressure on. So so I I, I do think um, we are we are going to really have to put a focus on um, providers on healthcare workers and staff um, and how we um, su- support their well-being at work, or we're going to lose them um, to other sectors or to retirement.
5: When we looked at, at the Ontario supply chain, that was one of our top recommendations, that that really you needed to have clinical engagement, that it was just being guided by non-clinicians too much. Um, and, and if you don't have uh, that engagement uh, by the people who really understand, you know, uh, on a on a daily basis what the challenges of the system are you're not even going to be rec- you're not going to be able to recognize the solutions when they when, when they hit your table so in in that vein you know um, for sure clinical engagement is hugely important who it, it, is there Is there a, a group or a, um, a, a type of thinking um, that, that you see missing in the innovation discussion we 're all here to, to talk about health innovation i 'm sure this isn 't your first forum that you 've attended to talk about health innovation who who aren 't you seeing at the table or, or who would you like to see more of at the table to, to really drive this conversation well, forward so,
7: so I think you know what what is what is innovation um, in service of, um, why do we want a, a more innovative, better healthcare system? Is to serve patients and families. Um, so the voice of patients and families in the conversation is crucial. The voice of uh, clinicians um, is, uh, is 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 crucial, and and um, uh, we don't always um, uh, we don't always hear those. Uh, you know, I think you know at CHEO last year we had um, uh, seventy five thousand patients and families involved uh, in research and we really want to drive um, um, the our research institute has hired a a family engagement leader who is herself a um, uh, a woman with extensive experience of 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 using our services Um, and we you know research is about um, answering questions and solving problems and so what do patients and families think? The questions and the problems are.
5: No, um, that's that's great. So I. I this will seem like a, a coming out of nowhere, but, but earlier in the day we had uh, Dr. Sandy Bachman uh, talking to us about um, the CMA report on virtual care. And I was just hoping you could share with us um, Chio's experience uh, with virtual care and what do you see as the opportunity and the challenges there? Yeah. And
7: I think that's one of the big, big opportunities um, that, uh, that we have. Um, we, um, you know, we've, We've we've started down that road. I, I'm, I'm trying to remember the stat now, and it's it's out of my head, but it's somewhere in the neighborhood um, of about a third of our encounters, our, our physician encounters with patients are now virtual, um, um, uh, and but, and that's direct patient um, clinician to patient. Um, we're starting. We have a, a project with the Cornwall Community Hospital um, where our psychiatrists are covering their emergency department because there are no child and adolescent psychiatrists in, in Cornwall and, and uh, well, there's, there's no child and adolescent psychiatrists outside the city of Ottawa and the rural counties around. Um, and what used to happen is kids would show up in the emergency department in crisis, um, they would tell them, go to CHEO, and then of course 95% of the time they wouldn't be admitted. So imagine you've got a 15-year-old in crisis, you're driving 90 minutes on a good day, 90 minutes back, 10 hours in the emergency department, not great, right? So um, our psychiatrist now covering the um, Cornwall uh, emergency department, so that when a kid in crisis comes in, they can um, either advise, uh, assess the patient, advise the the treating physician, or if they really do think the kid's going to be admitted, uh, tell them, yeah, come on down to to, to CHEO. Um Similar model with North Bay with our intensivists working on a similar model with um, our neonatal intensive care unit, um, and I think. Um, in terms of the Eureka um, crowdsourcing challenge, um, I think there's a couple of options in there that are about um, uh, virtual solutions and digital solutions, so that people don't have to come uh, to the to the emergency department. So I do think um, there is huge potential. The technology is there. Again, privacy is 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 an issue, and one of the I'm sure this doesn't happen at CHEO for the record. Um, um, but when we don't um, equip people and support people to use technology, um, they'll use it themselves. Um, and you know, one might imagine, for example, a physician might be taking pictures of, or a parent might be taking pictures and emailing them of a wound or a rash or whatever else. Um, uh, Sandy and, gave
5: that exact example. Mm-hmm. He's like, I do it with my kids all the time, yeah. but I'm not supposed to do it in my practice.
7: Right, right. <laughs> And I'm sure he doesn't. No. Um, <laughs> um, um, so, so I, I think that's a bit, you know, the, it's less about technology because technolo- the technology is never that hard to figure out. It's it's the the workflows and the and the regulation and the, the framework in which it operates.
5: Um, so, my my own two cents because I was one of the first privacy officers in, in, in Ontario and let, led the TASN Group for for a period of time. You know the thing the thing that often gets lost when we look at that privacy legislation, and it was in two thousand and four I mean we didn't have great phones, but like they were on their way right and um but the thing about that that piece of that piece of legislation and that regulatory framework is at its heart is consent like if I say it's okay, if I understand the problems right, um I can email that picture right but it's but it's hard to. It's hard to equip uh, organizations with the uh, right tools to get that consent and making sure consent is informed, which is a challenge whether it's a procedure or it's, you know, privacy related or, or, or those kinds of things. But, but consent, consent shall set you free for the most part, maybe so, 80% of the way.
7: <laughs> so that's one dimension. The other dimension then is, so, you know, why do we still have fax machines? Well, part of the reason we still have fax machines is there is a view in some quarters that fax is more secure than email, right? Um, And there would certainly be, um, be careful here, uh, regulatory authorities in the province of Ontario who would believe that fax is a a more secure uh, route of transmission than um, email, because, of course, none of us have ever misdirected a fax. I was just going it. to
5: say, it's for, sure, it's for sure more secure if you totally ignore human factors and how easy it is to misdial. If you just look at on the, like, from the bare technology and take the user out of it, yes, yeah. but once you throw in the user, I think, I think it shakes up, but you're 100% right. Um, the, uh, uh, the Privacy Commissioner's Office puts out guidance documents, and, you know... Um, it's not that it's encouraging a fax, but definitely points out that uh, there there is uh, less ability for a hacker to hack a fax machine than it is to um, hack a, an email account.
7: Yeah, although fax machines are increasingly becoming computerized, right? Yeah, um, exactly. So so maybe that'll nullify the uh, supposed <laughs> advantage.
5: It's a race to the bottom folks. (laughs) Um, Okay. So, so, so my last question and, and thank you for, for for taking these questions particularly since it sounds like you, you, you have a cold. So thanks. Um, You know, when we think. I'm post
7: cold, no longer infectious.
5: (laughs) Yes. Yes. Sorry. Dealing with the trailing obligations of a cold. Um, So, so we did uh, start off earlier in the day um, talking about the, both the sustainability of the system, in the sense that how much um, of government budgets is taking up by health, but also acknowledging that healthcare is also a driver of the economy as well. So, so you know, seeing it from both perspectives, and when we think about that, this cost, and this is my own personal thing that always nags at me. You know, about seventy plus percent of every healthcare budget, whether it's a family health team or a hospital. Um, it's people, right? It's 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 wages, it's salaries. Do we do we see anywhere in the near, medium, or long term um, technology actually enabling us to, to tackle, maybe shrink um, some of that budget, or or even put us in a position? To deploy people differently maybe more value enhancing tasks and 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 it could be value enhancing from the patient perspective but it could also be value enhancing from the care provider's perspective it might be more rewarding work for them too yeah.
7: um i i think both uh, i think both are possible and and necessary um and and i i would observe so uh, about a few months ago so kind of Eight years into my tenure at CHEO is the first time that we were fully staffed with child and adolescent psychiatrists. Like it, it we have we funding was not a problem. We had we had fully funded positions. We just couldn't find people, so we started importing people from the United States. And the political environment there is very helpful for recruitment purposes. Um, <laughs> Uh, and so we've now we're, we're fully staffed in in psychiatry, but the same thing happened with with uh, sonographers, with developmental pediatricians, and now even with nurses, which was never uh, until recently not a recruitment challenge. So so I think we may not have a choice. Um, PSWs and home care. PSWs in right? home care. Yeah, we're we're running out of people. So so um, how we can. Um, Better deploy, folks. How we can use technology to redistribute the work? I think those there, there, there is a there is a burning platform um, on that for sure.
5: Alex, thank you so much. It's so important to have this frontline perspective. Thank really you. appreciate it. Uh, and,
0: and a round of applause for Jody as well. Amazing questions. Thank you very much. <coughs> Hi, everyone. Alex here from Canada 2020. That is it for part two of our live recording from the Canada 2020 Health Innovation Summit. The third and final part will be available in a few days on the 2020 Network feed, including a presentation about global health challenges from Dr. James orbinsky as well as a political chat about the three Ps defining health politics in 2020, the provinces, pharmacare, and pandemic. Thanks very much for tuning in. And as always, if you like what you heard, give us a review or tell your friends to subscribe to the 2020 Network presented by Iraq We'll be glad you sent them our way.